Tēnā koutou no mai haere mai, welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today, after 20 years of war, we ask what fighting in Afghanistan has actually achieved. 10 New Zealanders were killed in Afghanistan in total. Were those deaths in vain? Well, we haven't been able to achieve what we wanted to achieve. Then, do we need tougher laws for people who publish intimate images of others without their consent? And the government's plans to define new significant natural areas have faced massive resistance. But how are SNAs working at the moment? It's a good thing we've been able to do, and we think it's good for Geraldine, and we, we hope it is too. We'll have that story shortly, but first, after 20 years of war, the US is in the final process of withdrawing from Afghanistan. The majority of remaining troops left with little warning this week in the middle of the night, abandoning military equipment and turning over the massive Bagram airbase to Afghan forces. By any measure, it is an ignominious end in Afghanistan for the world's richest military. Taliban forces are gaining control of large parts of the country and many see civil war as inevitable. Of course, New Zealand was a part of the coalition that fought in Afghanistan. Our last military personnel only left the country this year. But for all the blood and treasure, what did New Zealand and the coalition actually achieve? Wayne Mapp was the defence minister during a critical period of the war as America doubled down and New Zealanders began being killed. I asked him if on reflection, it was a mistake for the coalition to go into Afghanistan in the first place. No, it wasn't. We went there, the whole coalition went there because of Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda, remember, had just killed 3,000 people in New York and then they had further attacks uh, in Europe and in um, Indonesia. So they had to be defeated and indeed they were defeated. It was the staying on that proved to be the challenge. The nation building proved to be a task that was beyond the capability of the coalition. So was it a mistake for the coalition to hang around? Well, in hindsight, you might say yes. I remember in 2009 at the, the various ministers' conferences at NATO and in Europe that we were told that the, uh, the surge, which had been engineered by President Obama, would take longer than we thought to be effective. That was the military advice we were getting. But no one actually thought they could actually stay as long as the military said we needed to. And so it ended up being something of a um, hope that we could succeed, even though the advice was saying it's going to be really difficult. What did you and other defence ministers expect would happen? Well, we knew it would be challenging, and the, uh, the senior generals were saying, well, if you just give us enough time, we'll be able to build the Afghan army and police force to a level where they'll be able to take over. In reality, President Obama had already announced when they were going to leave, and that, of course, meant no-one else could stay longer, effectively. And, of course, who knew this as much as anyone? The Taliban. In 2009, President Obama announced the surge. Tens of thousands more US troops joined the forces in Afghanistan. In 2010, shortly after that period, Lieutenant Tim O'Donnell was killed, the first New Zealand combat death since East Timor. Do you reflect on that period? Yes, I do. Um, you know, the loss of soldiers, when it's on your watch, and in part because of the decisions you have made, weighs heavily, and it should weigh heavily, because, you know, a, a whole family's been affected. 
their future has been you know, mortally affected. And you, ha you have to bear a responsibility for that. Um, and of course, things got worse. Uh, I remember General Mataparai saying to me at one point, at some point, this was before Tim O'Donnell had been killed, at some point our luck is going to run out. Well, it did, and it ran out, ran out a lot worse than we ever anticipated, with five being killed in just a 10-day period in 2012. You know, that, and, of course, not long thereafter, everyone came back to New Zealand. So these are, these are weighty things to be. People have lost family members, futures have been lost, and it weighs heavily, and at the end of the day, you'd have to say, we didn't actually achieve what, we didn't achieve the second part of what we wanted to achieve, which was building the country. We achieved the first part, and the New Zealand SAS was involved in that, right at the beginning, of defeating Al-Qaeda. And maybe that's the bit that actually mattered more than anything else, but building the country just proved to be a task beyond us. And uh, you only have to look at ISIS. ISIS was a direct and immediate threat, and they were defeated. It's clear, you know, Western coalitions can defeat an immediate threat, but building a nation, that's altogether a different task, particularly if, let's say, a quarter to a third of the nation really don't want you there and will fight you. And that quarter or third, the Taliban, have proven to be much stronger, much tougher, mm. much more resilient than the other two-thirds of Afghanis, who, for whatever reason, have not been as invested as much as we thought they might have been in building their own country. So, you know, the determination of the Taliban is leading to the results we see now. Now, is this going to be a good thing? Mm. No, it's not. Look how terrible it's turning out to be in Afghanistan, and look at the sort of government they had uh, from 1995 to 2001. You know, terrible um, human rights abuses, mm. terrible repression of women and families, millions and millions of refugees. That's going to happen all over again. I want to ask you a little bit more about the future for Afghanistan in a couple of minutes, but, but reflecting on New Zealand's contribution to the coalition fight in Afghanistan? This is, a, this is a difficult question, but 10 New Zealanders were killed in Afghanistan in total. Were those deaths in vain? Well, we haven't been able to achieve what we wanted to achieve, but people did their best. They, the, all of us, from ministers across two governments, uh, Labour and National, with the PRT, we wanted to help build the province of Bamiyan. And in some respects, we did. When I went there uh, on the visits, I could see the progress that was being made, but it has come at a terrible price. Should New Zealand have pulled out of Afghanistan earlier? I don't think we could have really pulled out ahead of everyone else. It would have looked like a betrayal of everyone else. Everyone else who was also you know, bearing casualties. I used to sit beside the Norwegian Defence Minister at these ministers' meetings, and we talked, she and I talked a great deal about what we were trying to do, mm. whether we were going to succeed. We, you know, we had our doubts at that point. Um, but we both felt that we had to... We had to make our contribution, even though we did have those doubts. So, Is that the right reason to go to war? And I can understand why you asked that question. And if you knew at the beginning that uh, you weren't going to succeed, obviously you wouldn't. 
Um, but we thought in 2009 we had a good chance. We didn't have a 100% chance, but we had a good chance. Um, that proved to be wrong. But at the same time, though, you were getting that message in those high-level meetings with other defence ministers that actually the surge was going to be insufficient. Yes, we were getting that message. And, uh, you know, collectively, you, you could argue collectively we were blind to that. Uh, and that we needed to be more determined, but people made the judgment that they were doing as much mm. as they could. And I guess we were trusting and hoping that the Afghan army and police would be built to a level where they um, could actually um, defeat the Taliban. We used to do a lot of desktop exercises in my office as to whether that was actually going to be possible. And we concluded that, you know, it, it, it was going to be a touch-and-go situation. But New Zealand, of course, um, was only a tiny part of the coalition. The coalition yeah. was 130,000 um, soldiers, of which we contributed a total at the absolute peak of 400. So although I could say, and I'm sure uh, General Mataparai and other, others said and other ministers said, we need to sort of change approach a bit, you know, the voice that New Zealand had uh, was limited, um, and this is the challenge of being in a coalition, uh, that you, you do, in, at least to some extent, have to go along with the decisions of the coalition as a whole. Yeah. And that, that'll, be a, that'll be a challenge for New Zealand ministers and prime ministers in the future as well. You know, we're seeing it already vis-a-vis -vis China. I wonder for... Um for, you know, for, for those New Zealanders who were killed in Afghanistan and the families of those New Zealanders who, New Zealanders who were killed in Afghanistan, do you think they realised that part of the reason we stayed, even when we had doubts, was that we were looking to do our bit for the coalition rather than actually having a sense of optimism as to the outcomes for our mission? Well, we, we certainly did improve the province of um, uh, Bamiyan province. It's it, even to this day, it's hugely better. So in that sense, uh, we made permanent and lasting gains for the people of the Bamiyan province. And that's what the PRT was doing. It proved to be more dangerous than we expected. And as you say, families have had to pay a huge price in relation to that. And... Um, now, I guess the, one of the lessons that comes out of that is that we do need to be very, very careful. Ministers and prime ministers in the future, cabinets in the future, need to be very, very careful about uh, weighing up not just whether we go as part of a coalition, coalition, but also how long we stay and what we actually do. Uh, and, you know, every situation is going to be, you know, case specific, but there are lessons to be learnt. But, you know, we have succeeded in the past. I mean, Malaysia is the country it is today because mm. insurgency was defeated. Now, you, we shouldn't assume that everything's going to fail. Um, but also, at the same time, success is not guaranteed. And it is a question of making a judgment about that. The war has lasted two decades. More than 200,000 people have been killed. It's cost more than $2 trillion. What do you think is the future of Afghanistan? One of the most important meetings I had, or most insightful meetings I had, was with the Minister of Interior, Mohammed Atma. And he said, whatever you do, 
because you are going to leave. I know that, he said. You do have to continue paying, because as long as you pay, we will be able to hold on. Not particularly well, but we'll be able to do it. And he said that from experience. He'd been in the, the government uh, from 1992 to 1995 when the Russians were actually paying. Then the Russians stopped paying. And then everyone in the army deserted and the whole thing fell apart very quickly. Now that was pretty, it was a pretty messy government back in mm. 92, 95 in Afghanistan and we can see all of that happening. Can they hold the core parts of Afghanistan? if we continue to pay, and by that I mean the West at large. Possibly, probably, but not very well. So Afghanistan is always going to be that difficult country, no matter what the outcome is. Whether it's the current government, there's going to be a civil war, or whether it's the Taliban, it's going to be in the, you know, the worst abuses of human rights you can imagine, uh, and you're going to have millions upon millions of refugees leaving the country. And if that happens, New Zealand will have to play its part again in taking some of those refugees. It's our responsibility to do that. What are the lessons for New Zealand and for the Western Coalition forces? Well, I think ISIS, in fact, to some extent, provides a lesson. You had there a clearly defined enemy who was directly attacking nations within the West. A much more conventional warfare, in a sense. And the West was able to win that war. Mm. So nation-building, maybe it's not something you should do unless you have overwhelming support of the local population. And that didn't exist in Afghanistan. It did exist in Timor-Leste. And that was, you know, look at the difference. That was former Defence Minister Wayne Mapp. Labour MP Lewis Wall is with us next. And then, cutting a deal with cyber hackers. We ask a specialist negotiator if the Waikato DHB should have paid a ransom to get its data back. Hoki Maiti, we welcome back to Q&A. In developing news this morning, a man who uploaded a sex tape of a Christchurch woman to multiple pornography sites without her consent will not be charged with a crime because police cannot prove the man intended to cause the woman harm. Labour MP Lewis Awal wants to change situations like that. Her member's bill would amend the law so that regardless of someone's intent, it would be illegal to publish an intimate photo or recording of someone else without that person's explicit consent. Lewis Wall is with us now. Kia ora, good morning. Kia ora, Jack. Why does the law need changing? Oh, there's a good example of why the law needs, needs changing today. But essentially, uh, if you can't prove intent to harm or actual harm, then the police haven't got a ground to prosecute. Um, in this instance, this man did it to make money. Uh, in other instances, people do it as a joke. Um, it, it's often uh, part of uh, relationships that break up. And so from... Um, women's refuge perspective from a lot of women's groups perspective, uh, the main victims of image-based sexual abuse or revenge, revenge porn are women. And so we need to stop it, Jack, because it's not right. And it um, enables a per pervasive culture uh, against women. You've been through the select committee process. During that process, did anyone oppose the intent of your law? 
They didn't, uh, which actually uh, is very special uh, because in other jurisdictions that in fact has been one of the major uh, issues in the US, for example, they've used it to say that it's um, you know, the freedom of expression issues. But consensus across the houses, we think that consent should be uh, the threshold um, and we shouldn't have any harm, intention to harm or actual harm thresholds. And I think it's a big step forward in preventing this type of sexual violence. So to be clear, from what we understand about the Christchurch case, in this instance, the person who uploaded the images would be committing a crime. Absolutely, which means up to three years in jail, up to a $50,000 fine. And obviously what we're hoping is that there will be a chilling effect and people will change their behaviour. Um, I'm particularly, uh, I will say, worried about this generation. I think technology and the interface with technology for our children uh, means that we have to be quite specific in saying if you're under the age of 16, so if you're a child, you should not be prosecuted because actually the whole notion of informed consent mm. can't be given because there's no way you can understand the full mm. consequences of your actions. I've gone through some of the select committee submissions and one issue that has come up on a couple of occasions that really interests me concerned the doctoring of images or, or, or um, you know, images that are synthetic or deep fakes as they're known. So, so basically an image that has someone's face on it that isn't actually them. Would the law cover that? Uh, I believe not and we need it to cover that because it's the growing issue. So it's a form of art artificial intelligence and uh, we've seen it used in satire and um, they've used politicians and, and sometimes celebrities to, to perpetrate the technology. Um, but what we're now seeing is that um, the majority of, of deepfakes, 97% um, of it is used in pornography. Uh, and it's such a likeness that you would think it was the person. Mm. But because of the wording of the Harmful Digital Communications Act, it has to be an actual recording of a person doing something. But deepfakes is a synthetic construction that assumes somebody has done something. So it requires a completely different law? It, comply, it, it requires um, consideration of our law to make sure we capture it. And what I've realised is that if we do capture it, we will be the first country in the world to do so. The UK is currently grappling with this issue. So is the US. We have states, California, Virginia, uh, Victoria, ACT, but not a country who's prepared to address this issue, which is a form of misinformation. Um, but it's hugely detrimental to the victims. And I think that uh, we're, we've, we're getting clarity from the clerk of the House to make sure it's within scope. Uh, and that sometimes is the limitation of a member's bill. Um, mm. You have a proposition, you put it to the parliament. Um, but what I've seen is there is universal support across the select committee for this okay. initiative. The, the, so there's the, the, the criminalising aspect of your amendment, but there is also um, the requirement that the publishers, i.e. the websites where, this is, where these images are published, would yes. take down images once they had been deemed to be uploaded illegally. Yep. How do you go about enforcing that when you're dealing with big internet companies that are based overseas? That's a very good question uh, because in the, in the legislation there are takedown notices if somebody's convicted. We actually want to provide scope for interim orders where this um, information or this data can be taken off those platform providers. Uh, at 
at the moment we rely on the good, goodwill of the providers. They're explicitly excluded from being prosecuted. Um, NetSafe does amazing work with those providers and they're incredibly compliant. The police have told us so. So we are not going to like, require them to do it legally by creating a regime where they may be pen financially pen penalised if they don't. Um, but it is good you've highlighted it because in other jurisdictions they have penalty regimes if the providers do not comply. Is that something you would look at introducing in the future if they didn't? I think it, that's a future-focused right. aspect of this because at the moment we've, you know, the goodwill is very mm. good. I particularly want to highlight Facebook's submission. They have policies. Um, they do comply. You know, they do not want to be involved in perpetrating mm. image-based sexual abuse and sexual violence. Let's talk about China. You are part of the Interparliamentary Alliance on China. Do you personally believe there is a genocide underway in Xinjiang province against the Uyghur people? I believe that the process that is currently taking place in the UK, led by Sir Geoffrey Nice, who also led uh, the China Tribunal investigation into forced organ harvesting, where they proved that a crime against hum humanity was happening, I do believe that the outcome of that process will lead to a determination of genocide. I'll put my cards on the table. Uh, and I do so because um, they couldn't do it with forced organ harvesting. Uh, but there is a lot more information that is being provided by community members, by Uyghur community members. And I've engaged with some of our Uyghur community mm. members based here in New Zealand. And I believe them, Jack. I believe what they um, are saying in terms of the incarceration of members of their families. Some of them because they're Muslim and um, because praying is contrary to uh, China's policy. Um, if they speak their own indigenous mm. language, for example, they can be incarcerated in these, in these camps. And so for them to speak out when their families are still living in China mm. and to be using their voices here in New Zealand to highlight mm. um, what's going on, that, why else would they say it? So you, you were very careful in the way you use that language, and I know it's important to be careful with language in this space. But to, to be clear, you believe that a genocide is underway against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang? I think they're specifically being targeted. I think that there are issues of the sterilisation of their women. Mm. I think that they are using um, that group for uh, slavery, for organ harvesting. Uh, they are taking their children away from them and they are being assimilated if they don't engage in a propaganda campaign. Mm. That means they um, assimilate into mm. Yeah, I guess hand Chinese. Super clear though, you believe it a genocide. I believe it is, yeah. but we need international institutions too. So we need yeah. the UN too. And I know that New Zealand has joined other countries saying to Michelle Bachelet, the UN mm. Human Rights Commissioner, please do something with China's support or without China's support. And therein lies the issue, Jack. They don't want anyone in to have a look at what's happening in those camps. Should the New Zealand Parliament recognise a gen genocide in Xinjiang against the Uyghurs? I think the New Zealand Parliament um, has got a duty to support processes that will provide us with the evidence that that's happening. And I believe our Prime Minister and our Minister of Foreign Affairs are doing everything they can to facilitate that international process. I'm making a decision as a member of the Interparliamentary Alliance on China. Uh, within that role, we are privy to a lot more information uh, than other New Zealanders. Um, and I'm quite happy 
uh, for me, uh, based on the evidence I have mm. to say that. But look, I'm, well, I'm I mean, preempting. I mean, I mean, America says it's a genocide, right? <laughs> yes. And, and they say that their intelligence backs up evidence of a genocide. We're a member of the Five Eyes. Presumably we share intelligence with the American authorities. I think those assumptions, however, uh, if you look at how New Zealand has based its mm. foreign policy, has been on multilateralism and supporting what happens in the UN, mm. which is why it's so critical for us to have the UN Human Rights Commissioner be able to do her job. Right. Um, I want to show some pictures here of Riz Nur Mohammed, who uh, we interviewed last year when she decided to go public and explain her situation. She's a New Zealand citizen, she is a Fulbright scholar, speaks three languages, a very intelligent woman whose brother is currently detained. Um, she believes because he is a Uyghur Muslim in Xinjiang province. Is there anything more that the New Zealand government could be doing to support Riz? I think that we need to understand the circumstances um, that Riz's family live within. Um, and for a long time she has wanted members of her family to visit. They haven't been able to ascertain visas. She also has family members who aren't based in China, who live in other parts mm. of the world, who would like an opportunity to be reunified with her. I think that's the least we can do, is right. to facilitate the opportunity for Riz to be reunited with some of her family. Something else I want to discuss with you is the um, discussion on the suicide report that the cross-party mental health group presented in Thursday in Parliament. Why was it so important for you to speak in Parliament? Um, I think the issue of suicide, to be quite honest, Jack, touches everybody. Um, and I've had some personal experiences as an adult in a young person's life uh, where they have died by suicide. So um, my youth MP, young Chloe, uh, in uh, November 2017, died by suicide. I felt uh, incredibly traumatised by that process, Jack. I took responsibility as an adult in her life uh, for providing mentoring and support. And I did wonder whether there was a bit too much pressure put on her. For example, in addition to being the head girl at her school, um, she went on and got a scholarship. She was at university. She was the chair of the Manirua Youth Council. We were addressing issues such as homelessness. And I, and I felt that maybe I had not supported her as well as I could have been. Um, but in saying all of that, the intention of the report and the cross-party work was to look at international best practice about suicide. And the title of our report says it all. Zero Suicide Aotearoa. Our report is very clear. Every suicide is preventable. We have a, a national strategy, Every Life Matters. We have a suicide prevention office. We are doing everything that we can as a country uh, based on all the international research to be able to meet the needs of Chloe and others. Um, I was a member of that group from its formation in September 2019. Um, I wanted to speak because I think it's really important that um, New Zealanders also know that Parliament can come together. And I, suicide shouldn't be a political football. We should try, if we can, to see if there's a way that we can work across the House on this issue. And you would have seen in the debate, I mean, it's touched all of us, Jack. And I really wanted to be able to, um, I guess, use that now. And I haven't spoken about Chloe before, um, but... I continue to have that sense of responsibility to make sure that we're doing everything we can to support every member of our community who is feeling anxious, who is depressed, who have got challenges um, and 
how best we can support them is incredibly important. I'm very sorry about Chloe. I know that um, um, she was an amazing young woman and obviously that has really affected you and your colleagues and people who are close to her, so I'm very sorry. Thank you. Did it, did it become a political football this week? Because, I mean, your colleagues are aware of your connection here, they're aware of your work, and they didn't want you to speak. I think, um, well, if I talk about my team, they prioritised the, the ministers who are in a position to do something about it. Um, and, you know, I, we have very good relationships. So I want to acknowledge Matt Ducey. I want to acknowledge Chloe Swalbrick, um, Jenny Marcroft in the previous parliament, um, David Seymour and now Brooke Vandervelde. And we've been working as a team on this issue for nearly two years. Um, and my team, my cross-party team, uh, decided that they wanted to give me an opportunity to speak. So I want to thank Dr Ritti. And I have... Um, but what, what about your Labour Party team? They know, they know this. They know how Well, I guess it speaks to, to the hierarchy of Parliament, though, Jack. Does we, it? Yeah, well, not, in a way. Not to, not to something else? I mean, well, we, not in we, this instance. And, and my voice was, was able to contribute, like many others, mm. and, and I think that that is the most important aspect. And, and New Zealanders should be reassured that Parliament has an ability to come together on big is issues such as this and take the politics out of it. Um, it's sad um, in some ways um, that that has become the focus. I know, I know <laughs> it is, but it's like people wonder about these things. Anyone looks at it from the outside and, and wonders if you felt like you were being punished for speaking out about China. Did I, you feel that way at all? No, I was more focused on the yeah. debate. I more just want us to focus on the kaupapa. Yeah. I mean, these kaupapa are a big kaupapa, Jack. They're massive. Really big kaupapa. They're the biggest, yeah. And we need to honestly put politics aside, default to process mm. and just focus on the intent, which is to say that we as a as as families, as communities, mm. as a society can come together and work to address the issue of suicide. Do you get along with your Labour colleagues? I get along with my Labour colleagues, many of them, especially those that I work with um, in foreign affairs. Um, obviously, I've got long-standing Māori mm. caucus colleagues. Do you that feel included and valued? I feel included and valued by some members of um, my team that I have more work to do, you know, that we work together on. Some members? Well, but, but that's based on having a work programme where... Yeah, that's not all members of your Labour... Well, all members in terms of working, like, specifically. Mm. Mm. So, of course, I, I am a member of the team, Jack. Mm. Mm. Um, and um, I'm very proud to be a member of the Labour team. I believe we mm. are a social democratic um, party. You know, I'm a social justice advocate. I'm mm. a human rights advocate. Mm. And I believe that um, I have a contribution to make within the Labour team. OK. One last question. It's a fun one, I promise. It's for a change. <laughs> OK. Are the Black Fern Sevens going to win gold? Oh, my gosh. I've been watching them train. They're so focused. They can. Um, I believe they will. But you can't take anything for granted in sport. Yeah. And actually, you, you, it's... One minute at a time. Yeah. It's actually one second at a time. Yeah, especially in sevens, eh? But we've got the yeah. team. I'm so proud of them. They're yeah. amazing ambassadors and role models for the country. Kia ora. Thank you very much for your time. Kia ora. The whistle war. After the break, how long should the Reserve Bank play chicken with inflation? Could we really see interest rates rise before the end of this year?
Welcome back to Q&A. The Reserve Bank will publish its monetary policy review on Wednesday after several bank economists updated their forecasts to anticipate an increase in the official cash rate at the end of this year or the start of next year. It comes as New Zealand faces an historic labour shortage with numerous industries crying out for skilled workers. Cameron Bagri from Bagri Economics is with us this morning. Tēnā koe Cameron, welcome to the show. Just how bad is the labour shortage in your eyes? Well, it's pretty stark at the moment. You, know, you go talk to any firm around New Zealand and the message is pretty pretty simple. You know, they, they don't have a demand constraint, they have a supply constraint. And the biggest supply constraint they're facing at the moment, if we step aside from the issues in regard to supply chain globally, is sourcing labour and particularly quality labour. You know, we've got the unemployment rates down at 4.7%. We seem to be in the zone of what we call maximum sustainable employment, which is what we also call sort of full employment. Now, mm. full employment does not mean everybody's got a job because the, the glass half empty view, and remember, you know, while yeah, low unemployment is a really good economic story in regard to what we've managed to achieve, if you look at the, the flip side, yeah, we've still got about 350,000 people in New Zealand that are on a benefit. There's about 190-odd thousand on the job seeker benefit, about 110,000 of which are what's called yeah, work ready. So within a, a really good economic story in regard to what's going on here, we've still got some pretty big structural problems. How do we fix those? Uh, if you look at where we're going to head going forward, there's four basic levers that I think are going to get pulled over the next sort of year or two to try to navigate these big supply side constraints. Look, look, number one is that firms are going to need to be investing more in technology, you know, in innovation. Mm. You know, they're going to be, have to look at capital intensive ways of going about their businesses. For, for some sectors or some areas, that is achievable. If you look at apple growers, can they mechanise what's going on within the pack houses? Yes. Have they been doing it? The answer is yes. Can they mechanise physically picking the fruit? The answer is no. You know, the technology is still a long way away. What we're also going to see is obviously pressure on wages, and that's a good thing. Uh, more money in people's pockets. Uh, the risk to that on the other side is, of course, if you start to see excessive wet pressure coming through the labour market, it can be inflationary. And that's one of the reasons that people, there are growing expectations the Reserve Bank is going to be raising rates sooner rather than later. Uh, the third thing is that you curb demand. At the moment, we've got a situation where supply is constrained and the economy is hot to trot. It's pretty obvious we need to turn down the heat. And then finally, you know, what can we do to boost supply? You know, improve the functionality of the labour market. You get people into regions where we've got real stark uh, labour market shortages. Mm. You know, what can we do to lift labour force participation? Is there something we can do in regard to abatement rates, in regard to you know, letting people on benefits keep more or work a little bit more before mm. they get their benefit abated? But those are structural issues. They're long-lasting and they're going to be around for a long time. ANZ and BNZ have brought forward their forecast for an increase in the OCR uh, to the end of this year and the very start of next year. What do you think? If you follow the, the orthodox monetary policy playbook, and if you look at where we are in regard to inflationary pressure, if you look at where we are in regard to your maximum sustainable employment, you know, the Reserve Bank, I think, is going to be basically ticking the box and saying we need to move, and the signals are sooner rather than later. You know, so you know, the bankers are out there. They're playing the, the orthodox playbook. You know, where we sit at the moment, though, it's, it's a very unorthodox world. 
and unorthodox level one is that we're, we're only a lockdown away from a completely different economic story in the next 12 months. And of course, we're looking across the Tasman in regard to what's going mm. on in Australia, Sydney. We're looking at what's going on in Fiji and other countries around the globe. What is it suggested to the Reserve Bank? Yeah, proceed a, a little bit yeah, cautiously. What we also know is that the Reserve Bank has undershot their inflation target for a very long time. You know, their target is 2%. You know, they've been sub 1.5% for basically a decade. You know, so the fact that inflation is going to go through 2% within the headline or the core measures, I don't think should be any reason to spook the Reserve Bank. You know, I think they're going to end up with an inflation scenario where inflation is probably going to average 2.5% to average out mm. the last decade for the coming sort of few years. Yeah, But the Reserve Bank's got a real fine balancing act here in regard to where they go but certainly what needs to take place in the near term is that they need to signal an exit strategy in regard to the large scale asset program, you know, that's, that's the bond buying, the effect of printing of money and the funding for lending program, you know, that cheap money for banks, well the banks don't need it, you know, the, yeah. the banks have got abundance of money flowing through the system at the moment, your first cabs off the rack needs to be dialling back the stimulus being provided from those and then that's talking about increasing the OCR at some stage down the track. Consultation closes tomorrow for the government's tax changes around investment in residential property. What impact have those changes had on the housing market so far? Well, if you look at the figures in the past three months, you'd say pretty well zippo. You know, the, the property market, yeah, the, the monthly run rate has certainly slowed up compared to what we're seeing at the end of 2020, early 2021. But you've gone from, you know, you've literally gone from a gallop to a canter. You know, the market is still ripping along at a pretty fair clip at the moment. There doesn't seem to be an awful lot of stock in the market and we've still got a pretty well abundance of, of, of buyers out there. Now, now to be fair, yeah, that, that policy at the moment doesn't have an awful lot of teeth in regard to the real impact in regard to the loss of that interest deduction. Mm. And we're still not sure in regard to how broad-based it is going to be. Yeah, what we do know is that in 2022, we've got a combination of these tax changes are going to have a little bit more teeth. You know, the Reserve Bank is pretty serious now in regard to trying to slow the property market up. Loan-to-value ratio restrictions were first cab off the rank. And next it's going to be debt-to-income sort of limit. Yeah, we know that the migration numbers are constrained, so we're starting to build a lot more houses relative to the underlying population growth. Mm. In fact, building consents around 43,000, I think, in the last 12 months. If you look at population growth across New Zealand, it's sub 40,000. So we're building more residents now, more, more houses relative to growth in the population. And we normally see about two and a half to three people per house. And the other big million-dollar question is that what happens to interest rates over 2022 and 2023? Yeah, interest rates are going to be off their lows, but you know, the general expectation seems to be interest rates up 150, maybe 200 basis points in the next sort of three to four years. Now, to some people that's going to be scary, but you're still going to have interest rates that are still incredibly low compared to what we've mm. seen historically. All right. Always great to chat. Nā mihi kiakui. Thank you very much, Cameron. That is Cameron Bagri from Bagri Economics. After the break on Q&A, advice to the government that wants to extend SNAs from landowners who've had them for years. If you want to upset people, just come along and tell them that they're going to lose a percentage of their land um, because it's deemed to be a significant natural area. Kia ora te welcome back to Q&A. It has been labelled a land grab. It's also been described as our last chance to save what's left of our unique natural areas. But resistance to the government's push to extend significant natural areas has sent the policymakers back to the drawing board. Up until this point, though, 
Where have significant natural areas worked well? And given the intensifying resistance, are current owners still on board? We sent reporter Fena Owen into the backcountry. I've come to Timaru because the district council here has already identified 860 significant natural areas. So we're on our way to go and have a look at some of them and meet their owners. On the Geraldine Downs, Donald Gibson's land has 25 fenced off significant natural areas. So what is special about this particular SNA? I can see one, two, three, four, five kōwhai trees here. Yes, they are unique to this part of the downs at Geraldine and just two or three k's away in another gully, another valley, there's a different variety of, of um, Really? Trees. So these are endemic to this particular area? Yeah, that's right, and so they're special. It's a good thing we've been able to do and we think it's good for Geraldine and we, we hope it is too. SNA! No way! But since regions like Northland and West Coast have raised concerns about the government's push to identify SNAs, some landowners with SNAs have become unnerved. Farmers in general are very protective of, of special areas and do, do the best they can and are very windy of having anyone stepping into lay claim to them. Like thousands of landowners around the country, Donald's neighbour, Ines Steger, chose to put some of her land into a QE2 covenant. It's QE2 and that's voluntary. Well, we've done that before. Yeah. The district council did the assessments for SNAs. Ines's other SNAs protect remnants of forest that once covered the downs. What's it been like for you with SNAs on your property, watching the whole thing roll out in the media? over the last couple of months with SNAs? Well, I guess we're disappointed how it's been presented in the media. In what way? In a negative way, so it sort of gave the impression that the government wants to own the land. SNAs haven't just been invented. That concept has been around since the RMA was created. Timaru District Council's SNA programme has been up and running since 2005 when the council engaged an ecologist to identify the significant areas. The key to the, um, the SNAs is ensuring that the landowner knows what's there and understands those values. So in a lot of cases, uh, you know, the SNAs are there because they have been they've been left alone or protected, set aside, you know, by landowners in previous generations. That's Russell Brodie's story. His family have farmed in the Rangatata district for 160 years. We're walking on an ancient riverbed, a remnant of the savannah that once covered the Canterbury Plains before the big burn. It's now an SNA. We've, you know, I guess, farmed it but lightly um, and kept it in its natural state. Other than the gorse, that just invited itself. We didn't bring that here. So does this flower? Yes. Yeah. Quite amazing when they flower. They're like a little heath. Yeah. And when they flower, it's you, you don't see them otherwise, and they yeah. just 
come to life. But since SNAs have hit the headlines, Russell has also become concerned about the government's handling of them. If you want to upset people, just come along and tell them that they're going to lose a percentage of their land um, because it's deemed to be a significant natural area. But are you losing it? Well, if, if you can't farm it, yes, you've lost it. This coming Friday, farmers with their tractors and dogs and utes will take to the streets of Timaru and other towns around the country to highlight their issues. SNAs are one of them. That's in a lot of people's minds and it's a concern. I've been to meetings and a lot of people are very concerned of what's going to happen regarding it. Nobody seems to know and if, if district councils where they've got you know, a whole council of people and staff to look at it and go, whoa, stop, hang on, you know, we've got to look at this before we get too carried away, then if councils are doing that, I think farmers are right to be concerned what potentially is in the wind. Having fenced off his significant areas, Donald Gibson has advice for other farmers. I think it's a good thing to protect the, the, the native flora and fauna as much as we can. And we've done it all at our own cost. Uh, my own advice would be don't get tied up with councils and people with their, their funding. Do it on your own bat if you can. And... Uh, then you've got some control. But we, we think it's very, been very successful for us. On Russell Brodie's SNA, a plain once covered in tea tree, kōwhai and kanuka, he takes us to the family's special spot. So these are old remnants old, of those? Yeah. Old, old, mm. And my children used to come up here and, and it's always been special. And when I was young, I came up here and sat under these trees and, and had lunch under here. It was something about it that was special. So there's now time to think while SNAs are on pause and government officials reset the policy a long way from here. That is Q&A reporter Fina Ahn. After the break... Data stolen from Waikato DHB's computer system has been published on the dark web. In the wake of a crippling ransomware attack, advice from an expert whose job it is to negotiate with cyber hackers. Tēnā koutou, welcome back. International cybercrime experts say we're in the midst of a surge in the number of ransomware attacks. Patient data from the Waikato DHB was published on the dark web after the health board suffered a ransomware attack last month. But the FBI estimates thousands of businesses and organisations are targeted by similar attacks every day. It's Curtis, it's Curtis Minder's job to negotiate with hackers and try to retrieve digital information once organisations have been hacked. Curtis is with us now live from Chicago. Thank you for being on Q&A. How much of a problem are ransomware attacks? Yeah, I mean, over the last uh, couple of years, we've seen a, a dramatic increase in the number of successful attacks. The impact to the businesses, as you've probably seen on the news, is is pretty catastrophic uh, for the larger businesses that we've heard about: critical infrastructure, medical facilities. Uh, it can be it can impact daily life. Uh, the ones that we don't hear about are the small to medium businesses, of which thousands are also being hit every day. Who is responsible for these attacks? There's a there's a sort of a short list of of, of organized uh, the media likes to call them gangs but they're organized groups of hackers that implement most of the attacks there are some lone actors as well but most of them are implemented by these organized groups most of those groups are are, are based in Russia or Eastern Europe 
Are they state sponsored? We don't know for sure about uh, the, the the state involvement. There are some theories that um, you know they, they may have some coordination between those actors. For example, on the FSB in Russia, uh, maybe sharing information, sharing data. Uh, we do know that for the most part, Russia has offered some amnesty to these these actors as long as they're not attacking Russian targets. And what is the typical way in which a ransomware attack works? Well, initially, the threat actors will gain access to the network or they will buy access to the network. So there are other actors who, who whose job it is just to simply get access to the network and they sell that access back to the ransomware actors. So they either break in themselves or they buy the access. Once they're in the network, uh, the first thing that they do is they take as much data as they can without being noticed out of the network and store it someplace typically in the dark web. Um, and then the next thing they do is they will implement encryption across the infrastructure of the victim, which will prevent them from being able to access their files and systems, uh, causing outages, etc. So when businesses and organizations have been hacked, and the hackers are demanding a ransom, often those organizations come to you and your company, GroupSense. What is your strategy? Well, you, you know, we play a lot of roles in those scenarios. One is as sort of a, a consultant to the business. It is ultimately a business decision, and it does differ based on the victim's scenario. Um, it, we, we advise them on, on what the potential outcomes would be. Uh, we have a lot of experience with the, the, the threat actor group, so we sort of know uh, what, what's going to occur before it does. Typically, it's very script or transcript-based uh, activity. Um, and then ultimately, our, our strategy is to lower that, that price down to the lowest number possible to get the data retrieved. Okay, so to be clear, you, you don't personally go and try and retrieve the data through clever computer programming. You actually end up negotiating with these hackers in many instances. And what is your strategy when you're negotiating? Well, I mean, many of the traditional negotiation you know, strategies apply here. Uh, the, the, the trick is, uh, one, this is usually happening over a dark web chat forum. So we cannot see them. We cannot read tone, body language, make eye contact. <laughs> Uh, and then the, the second thing is, is we have to keep in mind that most of these actors speak English as a second language. So the words that you use are, are very, very important. Um, and so we, over, the, over the year and a half or so that we've been involved in these, uh, we've developed some pretty effective strategies. And we, we, like I said, we, we've built a database and, and sort of some intelligence around how these threat actors operate. And that helps us. But ultimately, your advice to many organizations and businesses that have been targeted by these hacks is to pay a ransom. I don't recommend paying the ransom. No, I, what, what I, I, like I said, I like to leave that up to the business. That is a business decision. Um, you know, I, ultimately, I do not want to pay these actors any more than the victims do. But in certain scenarios, like some of the ones that I mentioned, critical infrastructure, healthcare, where people's lives may be at stake. Uh, and then if you go down to the small business level, where a small business owner might go out of business if they don't pay the ransom, and that's really the only two options that are on the table, um, I, I, you know, I, until there's a, a third option, <laughs> Uh, th this has to remain a tool in the toolbox. And, and if a company decides to employ that tool, uh, that's what we do. We'll, we'll help them with that. There have been some really high-profile examples of these attacks recently. Baltimore was attacked in 2019, as in the city of Baltimore. The hacker wanted $76,000, but instead the city spent $18 million on completely rebuilding their, cities, uh, their systems. When the Colonial Pipeline was attacked, the owner paid $5 million to free the data. Here in New Zealand, a district health board in Waikato was attacked, which had potential impacts on hundreds, if not thousands, of patients. Would you advise the health board 
to pay a ransom in that situation? Like I said, I would not advise them to. I would leave that up to them. Um, what I would bring to the table were, would be all of the intelligence and, and know-how that we have from doing this work to help them make that decision. Uh, and then if they decide to move forward, we would certainly help them. Um, and it does sound like uh, it's, it's taking them a lot longer to clean up than they originally anticipated, so they could probably use some help. Is it a binary decision, Curtis? Is it either you pay the hackers or you completely rebuild the system? Well, it, it's more complicated than that, e even because the, like when I mentioned what the threat actors do as when they when they actually do the attack, they exfiltrate a lot of data. And what we've already seen um, with the the DHB is that they've been, been begun leaking that data. So there's also um, ancillary impact that you have to consider beyond just the interruption to service and operations. Um, the 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 employees, the constituents, the medical records that will be leaked are also something to consider. Yeah, we're looking at some images now of some of the data from the Waikato DHB that has been leaked. It's important to note that we haven't, uh, we've been careful to make sure that no patient data has been published here. How can you trust the hackers? If you are in a position where you say, OK, we're going to pay you some form of ransom in order for you to return our data, how do you know that they're actually going to keep their word? Well, you don't. <laughs> So, I mean, you're, you're making a, a deal with someone who has no accountability. So that is something that we, we, we let the victims know when we work on every case. We sort of bookend the case. In the very beginning, we let them know. And at the very end, before we do a transaction, we let them know that, look, uh, there is no guarantee here. But uh, the, the threat actor groups do have a history of honoring these ransoms. Uh, they do typically give you the decryptors uh, when you pay. Um, and as far as we can tell, in most cases, they do uh, not dump the data if they agree not to dump the data. At the moment in New Zealand, it is not illegal to pay hackers a ransom if your data has been targeted. But there's an argument to be made that if it were illegal, it might disincentivise hackers from targeting New Zealand organisations and businesses knowing that they couldn't pay a ransom even if they wanted to. Do you have a position on the legality of paying a ransom? I do. <laughs> Uh, we, we've had similar conversations in the U.S. about this. Um, my, my concern about that is that it is, it is further punishing a victim. Um, what, what I would like to see considered, so first, first, thing, first and foremost, what we've learned by doing so many of these, taking inventory of how the threat actors have gained access to all of these systems and networks, most of the attacks are not sophisticated in nature and could have been prevented with some basic cyber hygiene. And so what I would propose to, and what I'm proposing here in the U.S. Uh, as, as often as I can and as loud as I can is let's put together a comprehensive program to help with the prevention measures. And then if the, the, the attack is still successful, the cleanup measures. So that giving them that third option that I talked about uh, so that they don't have the option of go out of business, people die or pay ransom. Third option is government helps me recover, right? And I think that's a better approach than simply uh, making it illegal. All right, Curtis, thank you so much for your time and insights. We really appreciate it. That is Curtis Minder. He is the CEO of Group Sense. Kumutu, that's Q&A for this week. Thanks for watching. And namihi kia koutou i ngā karere. Thank you for your contributions. Thanks to the Q&A team. Hei te rā wiki. We will see you next Sunday morning at 9am. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.